0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Revelation podcast. I'm joined by Lincoln today. Uh, Lincoln, thanks for your time. Thank you. So Lincoln um, messaged me um, some time ago and and asked to be a guest on the podcast and thought it was really interesting, some of the views that you held um, at Lincoln. So I'd I'd really love to um, explore those further, if that's okay.
1: Well, my current focus mm, is on being scientifically creative, Mm. on the one hand and being a psychotherapist on the other. And I find the two work together. Well, being a psychotherapist works with anything Mm. because it's people oriented. And I do tend to find that the people I work with more frequently tend to mirror my interests, which in this case is performance. Um you know, I would say creative performance, but uh, you could be creative in anything. So since I have a science background, I'm finding a lot of people are either intellectual or science-involved professionally,
2: yeah.
1: and that means either academic or research, but also computers, computation, and even the people who are involved in business um software businesses and things that are related like well it happens that I have a client in banking well that's a funny combination of personality and prediction and authority and responsibility and a lot of the people I'm working with are trying to fit their lives in sort of sideways to their otherwise active schedules mm. and then I have a few people who I guess it would be fair to say are not are low functional um, it's always interesting how a person defines himself or herself they say you know I have anger management problems or uh, high anxiety mm-hmm. that's um, either I wouldn't necessarily say crippling but from my point of view it sounds pretty crippling but people do get by with almost anything and uh, it can also come out as uh, anxiety, insomnia, depression. So sometimes people are working on their weak points rather than their strong points. So the strong point people are entrepreneurs and um, some sort of executive function. And the weak point people have some definition of mental health or mental imbalance you know, in the sort of general population who does not go for counseling or therapy, Mm -hmm. people think they are adequate or functionally um, getting along. And the ones who come for help, I think they're, in a sense, I don't want to be too judgmental, but they're advanced to the point of working on things that they're not easily resolving. Yeah, for I sure. I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. and so in this that is sense, what I'm doing. Yeah, in that sense, yeah. um, Lincoln, um, would you say that, I guess that kind of, um, when you say that sort of more advanced, would you? is that in relation to kind of self-awareness and be willing to work on those difficult aspects of the life?
1: I think so. Mm. I'm like, I'm trying not to be judgmental because you can't really be judgmental as a therapist. You have to sort of take whatever weather comes mm. You're not saying, oh, you're sort of, you know, you shouldn't be in this storm, or or, these problems are not useful. Yeah. I mean, basically, as a therapist, what you're doing is reflecting back to people Mm. what they're telling you, and you're trying not to impose some sort of vision on them. So, if they say they don't have a problem, um, you might say, you might suggest they do if it is evident, Mm. or you might just go with that and say, well, fine, let's work on what I prefer to work on is what you think are your strengths. People like that. You know, it's easier to feel success in something you feel proud to do Mm. than it is to indulge in sort of the dark work of looking at stuff you don't like or are not proud of.
0: Yeah, for sure. And may I ask, um, Lincoln, did you always kind of plan on becoming a, um, a psychotherapist?
1: No, never. Well, then again, <clears throat> depends. I don't like the label psychotherapist much because it puts me in some authority. And as I just told you, you can't really have authority. Yeah. You have to be, uh, receptive, flexible, uh, understanding to a degree.
2: Mm.
1: I mean, I won't be understanding about people who are, um, injurious to others, mm-hmm. but I have a couple of people who are injurious to themselves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, Obviously they're coming from some headspace. And if they're coming to me or anyone for help, they don't want to be judged or directed or condemned. Yeah, sure. That would be, that would be silly. I mean, a doctor can do that. They can say, you know, you're eating too much or you're overweight or your blood pressure is too high. Mm. But I can't easily say you're thinking too negative thoughts or you're, you're worried about things that don't make a difference or your goals in life are not important. I mean, it could say that, but I can't imagine that would be very helpful.
0: Well, Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, um, I think, you know, I'm actually, I'm not at the, at that level. I'm a, um, I'm a therapist in training though. And I, um, the, the tutor would say to us that, um, the best way you can help someone is allowing them to kind of allowing them to help themselves and come to their own conclusions. Because even if I give you a piece of advice, A, it's not necessarily correct, but also you're not relying on your own strength, you're just kind of relying on my, um, I guess for for want of a better word, wisdom so essentially you're not actually letting them help themselves, if you're kind of then directing them towards certain things, but what you can do I guess is as you say, question and kind of allow that to kind of change their perspective in some respects
1: Well it's an an interesting dichotomy arises is that you're trying to help them no longer rely on you, yeah I mean that's certainly true, hmm. which means you're trying to make yourself obsolete or unnecessary. Yeah, which is also true, hmm. and it, it's sort of a it's sort of a, a little a melancholy idea that you're trying to evaporate or erase yourself from their life, which is sort of true.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, and uh, it's not always fair. So I. I it's one of those suggestions I put to people sort of obliquely that mm. they uh, consider my suggestions as sort of secondary to theirs. Uh, I, I, I'm making observations. I, I'm saying stupid things. I don't pretend to be right. Yeah. I'm looking for new ideas that might be useful to them just because they're new, not because they're useful, mm. though they might be. And I'm looking always for their feedback on what I think. And I sort of would like to get them up to speed where they don't really need my feedback too much. Yeah. And I become unnecessary, and then I lose a client, which is, you know, it's not the same as losing a child or a friend, but it's... You you do develop, in the best of cases, a knowledge of people that is warm, mm. and um, uh, the people I lose as clients are best when they sort of float away into happiness. Yes. Then I feel, okay, you know, I've been useful. Uh, Beyond being useful, I'm no longer necessary. And then I can feel positive. Yeah. There are also some that are negative and that don't work out. Mm. And they're very interesting. And they actually weigh on me much more than the positive ones.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting um, idea, isn't it? I think that, you know, just generally in the sense that we do seem to, the kind of negative aspects of, of some parts of life tend to, tend to kind of um, stay on our mind more than positive than positive ones. Like, of course, we get that feeling of positivity from certain things, but actually, I guess that the what we consider perhaps a failure or, or kind of a an issue with ourselves perhaps, you know, weighs on us more heavily than than a success.
1: Well, as it should, I think. Mm. I mean, successes are things you put in your pocket, but, success, but failures are things that have no place.
0: Although, yet, although, would you agree that in this in this example, um, that perhaps we can't? Well, I say failure perhaps is a strong word, but we couldn't consider it a failure because if you, I guess, if you tried your best for that for that client, perhaps the circumstances of them leaving you in a negative way were out of your control in some respects.
1: Well, they were, but. I usually have made a decision. You usually see a line that you cross, okay, with with some intention, Hmm. because people will tell you what they like to hear. Hmm. I mean, if they if they stop working with you because they like to hear you, but you make no difference, that's one kind of failure. Yeah, and another kind is if they don't like what you have to say, and they are in conflict with something. That's a different kind of failure.
2: Mm.
1: I generally am what I guess you could call very direct. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's adequately direct, but it seems to be more than most people or some people like. Yeah. And I make a decision about what I want to emphasize. And I I can feel it's almost like fishing. You feel somebody's on the hook Mm. and you want to pull them in a direction that they may not want to go so that's my decision. Um, sometimes it's assertive, like I'll, uh, you know, I think of two failures over the last few years. Mm. One was the person who wanted to stop smoking, and I told them they were basically fooling themselves. And another was a person who wanted their relationship to be improved, and I told them they were being emotionally violent, and both of them were kind of sanctimonious and felt that um, I should be on their side. Mm. I wasn't really on their side because I felt their side was destructive. Yeah. To what they had said they were trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah, because and so they
1: left. Mm. But I felt that was the right thing
0: to tell them. That's what I mean. So in, in that you know, you felt that you you kind of you had those you made those comments with the best intentions, which I guess in, in itself is kind of a um a positive. I'm not saying that perhaps the end result wasn't was what you hoped for, but you, you actually acted in your, with your own kind of, um, you know, with the best intentions.
1: I tend to think of people always as multiple personalities. Mm. Uh, you know, there's an extreme disorder of multiple personalities, which is really simply defined as having personalities that don't talk to each other. So you're really uncoordinated in your own sense of self. Mm. But most people have personalities that do talk to each other. You would call them moods or attitudes. And they can be dominant, you can get angry, and you can get uh, attentive, or you can be gentle, or you can be aggressive. And they're different frames of mind. Mm. And they do talk to each other, and you usually have some good excuse for why you are what you are. And what people often do is they project it onto the world and say, this caused this. Mm -hmm. I am this way because, or I am angry, you know. And and we feel this, and, you know, as a private practitioner, I have to market myself. And marketing means you talk 95% of people who don't care or don't understand or are not appropriate, and they're frustrating people. Mm. And it can put you in a bad mood, and you have to choose... What's the point of being in a bad mood? It's like, did you expect to be received more with greater welcome? Well, most people just don't get it. Mm. So you move on uh, without being taken into a negative frame of mind. But then a lot of people I work with, you could say, have trouble managing that. And they get stuck, like the people with anxiety and depression. Mm. Uh, It can be sort of chronic and low-grade. So that it just weighs on you and it makes you trouble going to sleep. Or it can be acute and you are frightened to go outside. Yeah. I have both people. Um, the more acute people are almost easier to deal with. I mean, it's like an acute situation. You deal, you put out the fire and then, you know, everyone feels better for a while. Um, whereas the chronic people, it's like we're searching for the trigger. Or the cause, yes, or the reason, mm. and those are usually pretty complicated.
0: Yeah, may I ask, um, Lincoln, in, in in relation to that, because I'm certain that you know, um, at least in some some form, a lot of the people that listen to the podcast will perhaps suffer from anxiety or or depression. I know it's kind of perhaps different in every case about how you how you would treat people, but are there any sort of general? Um, piece of advice you could give to people in in relation to those who are dealing with it outside of obviously, um, you know, speaking with a therapist in in your experience over the years, like how the best kind of strategies and how you can manage those things.
1: Um, I think you have a pretty big toolbox and people in general aren't using all the tools they have, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you can throw every tool at them and, uh, Either expect them to improve, or even understand all the different approaches. Yeah, and when I say different approaches, I don't mean well. I mean you could mean these sort of psychedelic psycho. I got ahead of myself there. Psychodynamic modalities that you know are, are in different chapters of the therapy textbook. Yes, but I also mean it more broadly because I don't think therapy textbooks are very good, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and more broadly in terms of Management of your personality, not just approaches of the therapist. So some approaches, well, like psychedelics, which I sort of slipped in there, are very popular these days, and everyone wants to know how they can help, be helped by them, and what they mean, and how to begin. And it's a little bit of a boondoggle because it's turning into a an industry, and people are being sold or at quite high prices.
0: I did um. Yeah, speaking of that, I did watch a, um, I think it was released about two years ago now actually, but an interesting um, video from the World Science Festival talking about the kind of um, the use of sort of psychedelics in medicine. But at that point, I don't think it was kind of at an advanced stage. They were still kind of, you know, uh, I guess applying the the research essentially.
1: Well, it's still not at an advanced stage. Mm. I work, one of my clients is a, uh, the partner of a psychedelic psychotherapist mm. and they're telling me all the the grody business skullduggery that's going on in that world. Right. And it's like, um, it's low grade borderline immoral business practices. Um, sort of like barber surgeons and yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, in other words, they wouldn't even make it onto the low point of the better business bureau. It's, it's, um, So there's a lot of stuff you can't trust Mm. in that realm right now. Yeah. It's contrasted to, you know, just to talk about the psychedelic space, it's contrasted with traditional uses of psychedelics, which are not Western. You know, these uh, indigenous cultures have used these things in their own Mm contexts. But if you try to do that, you're really not, you, you can't bring your expectations with you. Hmm. And then there are, um, the underground use in our own culture, which has sort of been recreational, but has also had its therapeutic aims, hmm. but it's not governed by psychotherapy or no institution. And so it can be, it can also be, uh, helpful or not. And, you know, the, the bottom line, these days is that you just have to educate yourself yeah. quite well. Mm. Um, but, I, so, but I was trying to get out of here is, what do I tell people? Your question is what I tell people they have anxiety or depression. Mm. And one thing I tell them is, don't jump on some silver bullet option. So even if psychedelics interest you, you know, maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, maybe they will help, maybe not. Mm. I've worked with psychedelics for decades, and I've worked with disabled people taking psychedelics who haven't made any progress at all, in my opinion. Okay. Um, they didn't necessarily use it in the psychotherapeutic mode. Mm. But then that's sort of, you know, psychotherapy is, you know, the person with a hammer uh, looking for nails to hit. Mm. So it may or may not work. I mean, it's a nice idea to join the two, but a little more insight and knowledge would be useful.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Everyone's part at this point. But I want to go on to a couple of other things. Mm. So I've spent a long time studying uh I think what could be best called neuropsychology, which is how your brain interacts sort of metabolically with yeah. how you think. What you can do with your brain to make your mood better. Mm. And uh at the most Mechanical. There are, you know, most of the knowledge comes from either invasive procedures. Uh, you know, there's the grim history of lobotomies. Yeah. But then there's also a long history of um, injury, right? So, um, what do they call them? Um, aneurysms. Yeah. Um, birth defects, uh, traumatic injuries. That can be localized and then you have, uh, strokes or whatever. Mm. And you try to help those people and you learn from that something which may be useful in general. And what I was doing was studying people's brain waves mm-hmm. and how it relates to their attitudes and problems. Mm-hmm. And it does to some degree. I mean, it depends on the nature of their problem. Yeah. But in general, for people with anxiety and depression, there is a tendency for them to sort of ruminate and um, have an overly negative focus. Mm. Well, I call it negative, but I mean, this is the important thing. A, a person who's anxious doesn't generally see their anxiety as negative. Well, the anxiety may be negative, but the things they're worried about seem real to them yeah. and I would say well they're not exactly real they are how you choose to focus on things
2: mm.
1: so if you choose to focus on how over committed you are or how under rewarded you are then you color your whole world on the basis of that focus mm. and it, it you know those things may be real maybe you are not rewarded and maybe you are over committed but part of it's what you do how you commit yourself and find rewards mm. but also it's part of how you think about things so we all heard experiences of poor are people being very happy and uh you know if you go to other cultures that happen to be poor you see them amazingly being more happy than our culture of sort of Western materialism. Mm. And if you work with, this is why therapy is great, you work with well-appointed, materially endowed people, and they're less happy. And uh, you start to see that it really is how you tune your mind. So I try to talk to people on this level and say, well, mental tuning is not just intentional It's what your strengths are in terms of focus and response and reactivity. Mm. And people don't really understand this because it's like trying to replace the branch that you're standing on. So I try to work with people to get them to do brain training or understand what it is. At its simplest level, it sounds like mindfulness or meditation. Yeah, sure. But that's... A simple level because mm. if you just sit and meditate you can easily go nowhere it does take a certain amount activity I think a good example is trying to fall asleep you can try to fall asleep with great effort and it won't accomplish anything mm-hmm. but what you need to learn if you want to fall asleep is how to relax your mind and you know if you've never had a relaxed mind it can feel odd uh yeah. so that's why i do almost with everyone mm. try to get them to use one of these brain training devices they have these little headsets sure that measure brain waves and they give you some feedback in terms of how active your brain is yeah which, uh, is, which is which is unusual and you can you can learn from it um so well here's what often happens. Yeah. Our attention moves all the time. It it, it like a wave we become attentive and then we become distracted mm. and sometimes we become vacant. And it's hard to know when you're vacant because you're not there to see it mm. and then you're present again. I mean the typical example is driving and not remembering the last 15 minutes. Yeah, for sure. And you say, well, you know, why should you? Nothing happened. You know, how much bandwidth does your brain have to store useless images of passing landscape? Um, so it seems like no time passed, because you were there, you were responsive, but you have no r- real memory of it. Mm. Um, so this actually happens all the time. It's not just driving in a dark night, you know, in a sort of blinding snowstorm. Yeah. But it happens all the time. We're constantly... Focusing and losing and having thoughts bubble around and then recovering and refocusing. And we don't know very well about the missing times when we weren't thoughtful. And those are often the most important times. They were when we were relaxed and receptive. Um, You know, if a fire alarm, a smoke alarm goes off, you'll be present. And, uh, you know, if a person you're driving behind suddenly hits the brakes, you will suddenly be present. Mm. It's a an, an reflexive action. And you'd like to get a little more aware of it. Mm. Because those empty periods are very important. One of them is called sleep. Mm. And if you can't get to an empty period with some intention, you'll probably have trouble sleeping well or getting to sleep. Because you'll be chronically wound up. So, that's one of the things, you know. Yeah. I talk about psychedelics, now I'm talking about brain training, mm. that I would tell to anxious people. And it's actually important for depressed people as well, but that's slightly another story.
0: But yeah, I mean, I um, no, I agree completely. And I think that, um, you know, having that sense of, as I found in my own life, having that sense of um, presence, I think is with um, anxiety as an example, um, I think that, you know, essentially, or at least as the theory goes, we're sort of always sort of thinking about things that might happen and then basing our sort of concerns on those. But that's just a projection of your own mind, obviously, and just seeing that reality based on your own perspective. But you're able to be more present and sort of more sort of absorbed in the present moment. doesn't allow for those, or I say it doesn't allow for those thoughts, but it doesn't allow for the more the focusing of those those anxious thoughts and perhaps that can then calm your mind in general. And I think that um, although on a basic level, mindfulness can be one way of, of achieving that and as you say like obviously your um, your methods essentially w- with um, with brain training are more complex but it all, all kind of relies on that kind of where you put your focus in your life I guess
1: yes mm. so for example I'm sitting here looking out the window on a foggy day mm. and I'm looking at my calendar and seeing who I have to see today and when mm. and uh, then I reflect on who those people are and how I feel I'm succeeding with them. Mm. And I see that, you know, over the time period when I'll meet with them, I'm going to be in a state of mind. It's sort of like I'm a horse for rent, and they'll be riding me for that period, and I'll be trying to pull their wagon forward. Yeah. And then I'll stop, and I'll go to someone else with a different issue. Mm and a different set of triggers and frustrations. And then I'll be sort of putting their cloak on. And then I'll be finished, and I'll be back in the foggy day, um, wondering, you know, what did I accomplish for myself? Mm. I mean, I'm happy that I charge people money, even though I sometimes think it's too much, because it gives me something to say, ah, oh, I did something, I got something today. Because I can't really expect people to reward me psychologically. That would be unfair. I'm not here for them to make me feel good, or, even though I do feel good when I feel good.
0: Yeah, or, but, you know, getting money sort of
1: does it. It's the trade.
0: Although the interesting point there is, it do you feel good simply because of your intention to to help them, like regardless of the result? Do you feel like you know I'm actually doing something worthwhile? Which I feel it is completely because it's the career I'm kind of trying to go into. But um, you know, I'm actually trying to help these people, I'm actually providing a space where they can feel that sense of relief. You know, I think that's kind of a, a reason to feel like you've had a you know, a positive and meaningful day?
1: Well, you know, a lot of therapists seem to be motivated by the desire to help people. Mm. That's sort of a healthcare industry paradigm. And I can appreciate that, but I don't really have that in that way. I'm more curious. I'm curious how you think, why you think, and why you do what you do. And I feel that understanding you, and maybe helping you, will help me understand myself sure other people and the world cuz the world is pretty fucked up in a global sense mm. you know and you, nobody really talks about you know why do we have wars i mean it's ridiculous that we have them and the amount of suffering they cause yeah and how indifferent we are to have what's going uh, to 90% of what's going on uh indifferent and uh, unable to uh contribute positively mm. so i I feel that it's important to understand that stuff and that the people I work with are helping. And I often talk to one client about another client. Um, you know, I don't reveal personal details, but yeah. clients who are struggling are great examples of reality coming to roost. And, uh, you know, I don't want to talk theoretically with some sort of Freudian Nonsense mm-hmm. because it's not useful most people are in sort of a firefight with reality yeah and I'm not going to sort of you know wax poetically about something that's only real to me. So I'm trying to understand people and I'm suggesting most of the time things that are outside their understanding
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you know, I could say I'm trying to help them and I keep suggesting things that may be helpful. But I'm not exactly, because I don't know exactly what should be helpful. And I don't want to be theoretical and say, oh, I think you should try this. Mm. I'd rather say, I think you should think this. Or, have you thought about this? Or, the way you're thinking, I don't understand. Or, I see this pattern that you seem to accept on one hand, and object to on another hand. So, often my objective is to make people... More confused than more certain. Although because I guess the,
0: the I guess the more kind of avenues you give them, though, that actually that can make them more certain in the future. So actually, it does kind of uh, help towards that end result by just opening up those possibilities initially.
1: Well, there you go. You can you you can do it in a positive way mm. that makes them curious, engaged, and hopeful. I don't generally I like the word hope, but uh <laughs> empowered. Maybe that's better. I mean, hope is kind of baseless optimism, and I would like to give some base to be optimistic. Yeah. Um, or you could be just confusing. And sometimes either one are needed. So, you know, a person who is very sort of rootless and uncertain might be benefited by encouragement. Mm. But a person who's very certain and uh, definitive might be benefited by a little more confusion mm. and it does get back to my interest in being creative yeah because ultimately I think you don't change except by learning mm. and you don't learn except by unfolding into some sort of novelty either understanding something new or putting together things in a different way so I come back to my other interest, which is creative science. Yeah. And I look at my daily schedule and I say, okay, I'm going to put in some effort to be creative in my scientific endeavors.
2: Mm.
1: And you know, that's, that, that's harder than working with people because it doesn't have a spot on my calendar. Yeah. And being creative is often very, well, it's it difficult because you, are always looking for what you don't know and trying to be something you aren't and achieve something that hasn't been done. And it's easy, too easy to put it off and procrastinate. Um,
0: Sure. I see. So you have to
1: love what you do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And actually, so from what I got there, Lincoln, in the sense of you're saying that kind of um, trying to achieve that sense of fulfillment and, and purpose in your life by kind of making space for those kind of activities that you feel are meaningful and actually trying to create a specific spot for it. Although I said like it's a bad example because you said there's no specific spot on your calendar, but you're trying to actually incorporate that as part of your day is the way you kind of, you find that fulfillment.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can put it on the calendar. As a matter of fact, I should chew that now that you suggested it. (laughs) Just put an hour in this empty spot and say, I will, I mean, it's very hard to say, Well, actually, well,
0: actually, I've, um, I don't know, it might not, it might not be an area that interests you, but actually, I read a really interesting, um, article recently. again, it's only in the, um, it's in the stages of testing, like they've, they've they've released a paper on it and, uh, they, uh, they're in the process of testing now, but it's basically a, a theory which combines, um, or or attempts to combine relativity with, uh, quantum mechanics, and which Mm -hmm. they thought they were kind of completely separate before, but the, the image um which I can perhaps send to you afterwards but the image was just um really fascinating when I saw it about the kind of which which kind of depicted their their theory and it's something about how something about mass they're kind of seeing if mass of solid objects changes over time and perhaps that would test their theory but I um I won't kind of explain it fully here but it's such a fascinating theory because I'm, I'm really interested in that field uh, that area of science and uh and um yeah, so like I guess I don't know if this interests you, but that might be something you could you could look up because it really it was a really interesting article, and I'm really hopeful of the um, of the results because I haven't had anything sort of I guess groundbreaking theories released in that field, um, you know, recently.
1: Yeah, I am. That's uh, pretty close to the field I'm interested in. Mm. I'm, I work in quantum mechanics, oh. and relativity is not uh, on my menu. Uh, Yeah, because the two don't
0: the two don't match, do they? In terms of the mathematical calculations, like although it kind of, uh, well, they make sense uh, independently of each other, but not 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 together, essentially.
1: Well, they can they can be combined in some contexts. Yeah, sure. Um, Special relativity doesn't have too much of a trouble. It's well, uh, I mean, it gets problematic. So, but it turns out, at least in my estimation. That, uh, the problems of one are not solved by the other. So I don't need to be concerned with the relativity because, well, basically the problems in quantum mechanics don't depend on time or space. They're logical problems. And, uh, there are a different set of problems that come in when you mix time and space. Yes, for sure. You know, mostly in gravitation. But so that's, you know, but one of the things I found to slightly change the topic. Yeah. Is that Um, I don't know it's it's hard not to be judgmental but I find people are not very creative so I've been involved in physics for you know 40-50 years wow and when I originally started you know you read the stuff and you glean 10% of it and the other 90% you set away for later Mm -hmm. if ever and usually it's never because you get directed in some other direction and have to learn something else But I've come back to these materials now, um, because I don't have other professional obligations in physics and I can return to the ones I'm interested in.
2: Mm.
1: You know, I have to like block out the time in my calendar and I have a couple of books that I feel I should read. Some of them are old textbooks, but then you gotta know, you know, those, those can be this, uh, distracting too. And what I'm saying is that a lot of people are not creative. I have the benefit of having met a number of these people who wrote the textbooks that I have. In fact, those are the textbooks I wanted to learn because I knew the people. Wow. And I sort of wonder now that I'm reading them, why do they obsess so much about these wrong-headed ideas? But once I start to understand something, you realize that there are lots of rabbit holes that go nowhere or just double back on themselves. And you see people apparently very skilled and celebrated people who are just going around and around in these rabbit holes because they're investing themselves in formalism or they're believing that the problem is somehow mathematical as opposed to logical and I get some distance finally, after many decades from a lot of the standard stuff that I thought I needed to know and what that leaves you with is it's sort of out in the cold. Okay, now you think you know better, or me in this case, hmm. and how do I move forward? It's almost like learning to walk again, because I've rejected the standard knowledge of many people before me, which I feel was dead-end or circular. Mm-hmm. And so now how do you make time and be productive in uh Something that's even foggier than the day that's around me. Uh, as one of my friends and mentors said, science is like not just walking, not just walking in the darkness, but it's like walking backwards in the darkness. You are constantly dropping what you thought was going to help you in an attempt to invent something.
0: But New. But isn't that the um, the beauty of science in the sense of just that kind of, that is the almost sense of presence, I think, in the sense of like, you know, um, science is the kind of the one sort of field where essentially you're trying to prove yourself wrong. You're not trying to oh. prove yourself right. Um,
1: well, you don't
0: make friends that way.
1: That's the problem.
0: But also, but it's it's just a kind of, I think a lot of scientists are just kind of naturally curious. And actually that sense is kind of like, I feel like, you know, when I'm reading an article, um, I'm not a scientist, I'm just interested, but when I'm reading an article, I feel like I am a great sense of presence because I'm just in awe and just under- trying to understand what it is that this new theory could posit or or kind of um, could, you know, could what new sort of ideas it could, could you know, could take shape. Um, and actually, I think that that's what, you know, any passion that we have or, you know, science in this case is. It's just a sense of like walking forward, yes. even in the darkness, but just being curious and sort of being and feeling as if you, Um, you know, trying to find out some, I guess, some great, um, you know, epiphany about the world around us.
1: So that thing that you mentioned, the feeling of whatever it was you felt reading science, Mm. I I think is, it's sort of one of my touchstones. If you read science and somebody's telling you how it works and making you feel like they know and you don't, and Mm. if you study really hard and follow their path, you'll learn. Mm. It's very sort of, feels sort of dead to me. And when I see that, or read that, it turns me off. Yeah, for I'm sure. much more interested in the people who say, this leads into greater realms of possibility and uncertainty. Mm. You know, so, you know, if you were really interested in quantum relativity, you'd read that insufferable, incalculably, incalculably complex stuff. Mm-hmm. But you'd probably find it unrewarding. And I assume you do, or otherwise you would read it. But you probably look at stuff you know, like my friend Neil Tyson is famous for always inciting wonder. And I think that's great. Mm. That's what people like. They, he doesn't go into detail. And uh, they don't want to go into detail. And that can be a good thing in terms of inspiration. It's a bad thing in terms of Sort of loses, it can lose reality and turn into a kind of prejudice of science is great and anyone who doesn't think along those lines is misguided, mm-hmm. which is uh, not a great point of view. No, sure. But, um, it does get back to therapy and self understanding because you want to have that attitude toward yourself. Yes. Yeah that it's as mysterious and wondrous and full of potential as anything you can imagine. Mm. And, And so here's where I say, well, you don't make friends when you're constantly trying to prove things wrong, and you don't make friends with yourself when you're constantly trying to doubt what you know. On the other hand, that is exactly the place where there's the most wondrous potential.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: So how do you get a person into that space? Where they, I mean, he, the answer is they have to love themselves. They have to be self confident enough to doubt everything they know and still feel inspired.
0: Yeah. To have that foundation uh, to go back on, isn't it? Like, so even if you make a you mistake, you have a foundation to fall back on, essentially.
1: Yeah, can you imagine somebody who learned landscape painting and now felt unsatisfied, like J.M. Turner in, you know, the late 1800s? started painting these landscapes where the colors weren't realistic anymore and the the storms just were swirling colors in the background and then people said, that's horrible, that's ugly, that's not real. But he became a vanguard of what eventually became, I guess, modern art, Hmm. where it was impressionistic rather than realistic. Sure. And you can imagine how frustrating it was for him to be expressive And be rejected. Mm. So I'm saying this is sort of a model for ourselves. We have to be expressive and expect we will reject our, our own epiphany as insufficient and unrewarding Mm. and under unappreciated. Mm. And it does get us in a funny kind of interzone. That's, it's not the shadow work, but it's not euphoria. I think it's a good place to be. So I encourage my clients to be in the creative space. Mm. And you can see that it's often difficult, especially when it comes to, well, like, what about your family or your partner, where you're trying to maintain stability and positivity, and now I'm encouraging to test people, trigger people, uh, enjoy the chaos And the struggle and the strife, it's like, how many people want to do that?
0: Mm.
1: Um, Often, not many.
0: Well, yeah, that's the thing, because when you take science as an example, it's safe to sort of think of it that way, because obviously it's not, say it's unrelated to you, but it's unrelated to your life directly, in in some respects at least. But actually, if you're thinking about yourself that way, it's a little bit more, well, it's a lot more difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But actually, I think that... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I was saying just it's a really good philosophy, though, I think, and a really interesting philosophy, and I I do agree with it in the sense of, you know, treating yourself as if, like, you don't have all the answers, and also, like, I'm I'm searching for the answers within myself. I can doubt what I know in order to grow. That's a really, um, you know, wonderful mindset, I think.
1: So here are two more things I recommend to people.
0: Yeah. One
1: is the obvious, we hear it over and over again, which is surround yourself with positive people.
2: Mm.
1: You know, positive is a little dicey here because we're talking about challenge and change but still surround yourself with people who encourage you and support change and find reward in new ideas that are pertinent to you Mm. so uh, and sometimes we don't have the latitude, oh the the traditional example is our parents Mm. infinitely stubborn and hopelessly um, conservative Mm. Yet at the same time, uh, undetachable. You know, we, very few people, some do, but most people are always attached to their parents. Yeah. So in spite of their intransigence and stubbornness, and most of us reflect on our childhood and even our adult relationship with our parents with a kind of frustration, you know, that they'll never understand or they never provided, they never will provide. And they don't like to hear that they can't provide. And and then you start to say, well, you know, maybe you're obsessing about something that's never going to change. Mm. And how do you get a person to release that? Yeah. I had something else on my mind, but I'll end there for a the moment.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think it's, um, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? And that's, I guess that's the core sort of, idea of um of therapy in the sense of how much can we can we change and how much is a person capable of of changing i think that's kind of uh especially when it comes to those sort of um those ideas that have existed within us for a for a long time i guess it's harder to kind of to shift the things that have been in our kind of um our thoughts for and our our psyches for so long essentially
1: well so here's here's an example that we were talking about this last night in the group. That the problem is the solution. So, for example, your parents are a great example of how the problem is the solution. The problem is they're inflexible. They haven't understood, and they're not interested in understanding. They're not interested in accepting what you call their guilt. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that you can't change them. And the solution is to understand that there are certain problems you can't change. And it's not a problem. Because if it were a problem, it would have a solution. And you're not trying to beat them into sub- submission or, or reform them in your image. You have to understand that they... Uh, What's the expression? What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immo- immovable object? Yeah. So the unstoppable force is the desire to reconcile, and the immovable immovable object is, in this case, your parents'. So they are you know, the solution to that problem, what happens when these two forces meet, is that uh, you find some natural balance.
0: Yeah, actually I think that's really touches on something quite important as well, in the sense of the um the importance of acceptance as well. Because sometimes, you know, many people think perhaps acceptance is like is giving up, but for me and and you know, as far as I've learned, it's kind of more a sense of accepting the things that perhaps you um You can't change or unable to change, and um, you know finding contentment in in life as it is, in in some respects.
1: The irony is that once you accept what can't change, it often starts to change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Um, yeah. I think that's a really pertinent point. It may not change in the way you want, but what you want in fact, may also change.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, your mindset is different. So, perhaps the things you held as important before weren't, aren't as important now. So, therefore, you perhaps are more content in in the new in the new reality as such.
1: Yeah, I remember I had... Uh, this is where I wanted to go, dreaming. I had a dream, now that my parents have died, mm. I have a much better relationship with them. Um, I had a good relationship with my father. My he, mother always frustrated me. Yeah. And so, she appeared in a dream in which she was chatty and happy and... You know, ditzy as usual, but felt much more at ease with herself. Mm. And, um, I remember in this dream, I asked her at one point, you know, she was chatting away and very positive and, uh, distant as usual, but, but somewhat inspiring in her, in her happiness. And I asked her, you know, where are you? And she said, Oh, silly. I don't exist. And I woke up startled. And it, you know, I reflected on what does that actually mean? Mm. Did she ever really exist for me? Did I ever really know who she was? Do I know better now that she doesn't exist? And I kind of feel I do. I have a better sort of image of her now that I don't have to live with her contradictions. So I wanted to get toward dreaming, which I think is one of the best therapeutic tools. Yeah. And it's reflected in how really difficult it is. So dreaming is not simply remembering your dreams. It's working with them. And it's really like working with an alien intelligence who happens to be you. Mm. And that's an interesting idea because it points to the fact that who you think you are, your ego, your intentions are only a small part of yourself. They are not the author of all your thoughts and feelings. They are just your attempt to drive those thoughts and feelings in a direction. But dream work puts you sort of front and center with something deeper. Mm. And that deeper thing is, I like to think of, as chaos. Dreams tend not to put things together. They take things apart. They juxtapose what doesn't fit, and they spotlight what you don't understand. They're not trying to answer anything. So if you're trying to put the jigsaw puzzle together, the dream comes in and messes it all up. It doesn't throw it on the floor, it just rearranges the pieces, often in ways that you were trying to avoid. So right. you were trying to solve a certain problem, and the dream comes in and reconfigures the whole thing. I'd like to say that you, it's a good idea to go to sleep with great intention on what are the most important issues of your day.
2: Yeah.
1: And you can be certain that whatever your intentions are, whatever your expect, expectations are, you will not get those met. You will be invited to reconsider them. Uh, you know, the highest will be thrown down, and the most lowly ideas will be elevated to dominance and you'll wake up confused and that's fine and that's what you should remember not so much the logical conclusion of the dream and it's very nice when they do have some logical conclusion Yeah. but the illogic confusion that represents what you're avoiding that's the most creative uh, environment if you can remember it, you have to want to remember it
0: mm. that's really interesting. I mean dreams are a different obviously different um topic entirely that they they're related to what we're saying. I think it's a uh, you know massive kind of uh expanse of um you yeah, expansive field and um you know I was always not that I've really um researched it, but from what I have read and listened to like i just I always felt like dreams are sort of like murmurings of the sort of unconscious mind essentially just kind of thinking you know the things you've that have been on your mind are all sort of as you say laid bare although in perhaps puzzling ways when you you know when you when you do dream um but it you're right it sort of often often sort of speaks to you in a way that your your logical mind can't or 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 perhaps is refusing to or, or does, doesn't want to at the time you know um and i think that's yeah it's a really fascinating area for you know, further research, I think that, um, again, I, I think this was many years ago, actually, but I saw a, a world science festival video about kind of dreams and the kind of nature of how we can, um, you know, how we can go further into research and dreams and, and using dreams. And actually there was a, I think an artist that kind of, um, he, he did like, he had like a role where, um, he, people would, would pay him or, or, or request him to um, draw them as he saw them in his dream. So he kind of, he got some information on them first and then he, intent- he he went to sleep with the intention and did several things with the intention of meeting that person and drew them as he saw them in in his dream. I don't know if you know um, um, Brian Green, who hosts the World Science Festival, but he he, he did it with this person. And um, he, um, yeah, he just, I think it was a, he drew a picture of a a chair or something when he, when he i think it was a chair or something when when Brian kind of appeared in his dream um but as for what obviously as for what significance that has obviously i guess it's just up for up for debate but it's quite interesting about having that like as you say having that intention before we go to sleep about dreaming can actually alter our kind of perception of yeah our perception in that dream because he remembered sort of pretty much everything that happened as well and actually drew it after when he woke up so yeah it's really interesting i think
1: it's not that different from I mean, it feels very different, dream work, because it it it's not really a continuum. There's like conscious and unconscious. Mm. There's logical mind and this strange dream world. Mm. It's a jump that you could call it a quantum discontinuity, discontinuity, but that's another abuse of the term. But it, is a, it is a discontinuity. Mm. And so, you know, when I'm working with a person who's depressed or anxious, two common things, and I'm telling them, You want to start to get some flexibility in how your mind sees your world. You might start by questioning your logical presuppositions Mm -hmm. or the way you see problems or how to react to them. Yeah. But you could also become more open to the illogic of your dreams. Well, first you have to remember your dreams. Then you have to follow them because you're usually only given a thread to start with. Mm. And then you have to sort of manage your day properly so that you still get enough sleep at the same time that you're interfering with your sleep, which is kind of what you have to do to remember your dreams. And to try to... I mean, the dreams are an example of a disruptive way of looking at the world, Mm. which most people either don't remember or can't figure out what to do with. Mm. And if you ask a person who's anxious or depressed to remember their dreams you know, they're they're inclined not to, because mm-hmm. their dreams will only make them feel more disconnected and more uncertain. Yeah. And will highlight all the things that trigger their anxieties. Mm. And you say, well, you know, You won't, I won't say this, but I'll think this. The problem is the solution. You want to go into all those things that trigger you and make you anxious because those are the things that are assailing you. Yeah. You're not going to solve them, uh, through rearranging your time, your address book. Uh, I mean, ultimately that will have a real resolution in your life, but the tools you need to assess your anxiety and depression are not the logical ones. Hmm. So it, you know, obvious example, which may not be right, is you've got trauma. Are there traumatic memories in your past? Yeah. We're so good at forgetting. Actually, we're not very good at remembering. Um, and, and what we forget soon becomes irrelevant and distant and out of reach. And after a while, it doesn't even exist anymore in present time but it's still there and it will sort of bubble up in dreams and it will infect your mood and trigger your anxiety so maybe you need I just say maybe not always hmm. you need to go back to what's triggering you at a deeper level so you're discontent with your typically parents or frustration in adolescence or childhood yeah, bullying um it, and, and interesting things happen when you go back there. So I try to be supportive and encouraging mm. and tell a person, I know it may not feel good. I know these images may be negative. But don't take them as negative. Just take them, you know, this is how you deal with trauma. Don't be re-traumatized. You're only trying to clean up the garbage. You're not trying to wallow in it. Yeah, um, it's a different frame of mind. Yeah, to be distract, to be detached, but engaged, is not the same as being overwhelmed, and,
0: uh,
1: you know, lacking in insight.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, it's such an interesting, um, you know, concept um, linking it. As have you know, you know, all the things you've spoken about with me today. It's been so um, fascinating, not only to sort of get your ideas on it but also kind of open up my own understanding into these ideas and uh, you know for me it provides a kind of uh, a platform to go on you know do some more research about what these kind of um you know potential the d- fields of kind of um you know sleep and uh, and dreams can can have and also the you know the philosophy of approaching i loved it you know approaching your own kind of life as if it were kind of that um mystery of science is just a wonderful kind of um idea that already. Um, really stick with me so you know so thank you and um what i would um what i would do if possible just to ask you um you one final question is something i wrote down right at the start or towards the start of our conversation when i was hearing about your um um your background and that's kind of um the um uh, the concept of of change and what i'd like to know if you're comfortable to and without kind of breaching confidentiality of your clients um do you have um i guess kind of meaning a meaningful or kind of a a memorable example for you of when you're able to kind of i guess change someone's or help to change someone's um mindset when they were in a place where you felt like initially from speaking with them they were kind of stuck in a stuck in a rut so to speak so like that immovable object where you're able to kind of um i guess move that with um with certain people because the reason I ask is because I think that Many people listening probably, perhaps, are struggling with with thoughts and ideas that they can't, you know, get through or or see the end of see the light at the end of the, the end of the tunnel. Um, I was thinking maybe providing an example like that might be able to kind of support them in their journey as well, even if it's just a brief one.
1: Uh, there are two answers. Mm. The first, and most resounding answer is no. Sure. Because yeah. the change of mind is not a continuous thing. It's very important that you realize. That to changing your state of mind, it's not an incremental logical process. Mm. So I have had these successes and you're usually left, you know, wondering what happened.
2: Mm. You
1: know, we were struggling with this problem and now all of a sudden it's gone. What did I do? What did they do? Um, it's not, I mean, this is why it's frustrating. It doesn't respond incrementally to your intentions. Mm it responds suddenly and dramatically. People suddenly say, I don't need that anymore. Uh, they jump from one rail to another. It yeah. seems. And it doesn't happen um, for no reason.
2: Mm.
1: It usually happens because you've sort of banged on it. It's like you're trying to punch a hole through a wall. You bang and you bang and you bang and then bang, there's a hole. Mm. And the light comes in. And and you can, you know, like an octopus go out through the tiniest hole or crack in your otherwise bleak world. Yeah. And it's all past you. And it's like, Oh, I have a different frame of mind. Mm. So one of the things, I, you know, to be constructive in an answer, mm. um, and to go back to the dreaming example, I have a book called becoming lucid. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the answer is that you, you, Lucidity is not something that you increment. It's not like the dawn and it happens over five minutes. You know, the dawn is even fairly dramatic, but it, it's in the blink of an eye. Mm. Sort of, so this is sort of what psychedelics seem to offer. It's like a sudden change in reality that you can remember. Uh, dreams can sort of do that, but like I say, they're difficult. You've got to work your way into them. Yeah. And this book called Becoming Lucid is about the process of Accepting an alternative vision. Mm. Um, I have a blog. If you sign up for the blog, which is free, you can get the book for free too. Perfect. Digital version of it. Um, and you go to my my website at Mind Strength Balance, and there's various links and pop-ups that ask you to subscribe. Sure. Um, so that book looks at four stages of consciousness. The two main are being awake and aware, mm. intentional. And intellectual and the other is being asleep and disconnected and you know being present in a dream if possible mm-hmm. and the other two are in the process of waking up in the process of falling asleep mm-hmm. which are brief sort of sunset and sunrise periods where you have the possibility of sort of moving through the veil without losing yourself entirely yeah so that's what I would say to people there is not it does take work,
2: mm.
1: and the problem is part of the solution, but there's no formula. In fact, if there was a formula, you could probably assume it's the wrong one, because you've probably been working with that formula for a long time, mm. like a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, um, You have to drop the formula. And uh, so, you know, you have to become lucid, but it's not lucid in the intellectual sense. It's lucid in the sense of awareness, mm. aware of other things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Alter your perception, alter your reality, essentially. Yes. Yeah. That's fascinating. Thank you um, so much. And that's, I, I, What I'll do is, um, uh, with your permission, I'll provide links to your, um, your website, um, link in the episode description, so people are able to, um, you know, access that, that content. Yeah. And it's really, like I say, I must, um, I must thank you. It's really, um, such a wonderful conversation. It was really kind of enlightening in the sense of the, the fields and, and interests we were able to speak about and the, you know, the philosophy of, of change as well. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for your time.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity.